Hello, and welcome back to the Modern CFO Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Seski. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined with the Chief Revenue Officer of LOB. Corey, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Andrew. Great to be on. So, Corey, I wanted to get started right into this podcast with going through your personal background and you know, landing at LOB and explaining what LOB is and uh, why you're still excited to come on and share what uh, the mission of the company is and how you got there. Yeah, sounds great. You know, I've listened to your podcast. It's a great podcast, great series. And I think a lot of your guests refer to kind of a non-traditional background. I certainly have a little bit of a non-traditional background myself, which I guess if they're all non-traditional, we're probably all actually traditional, right? But either way, I'm not I'm not a CFO, nor am I really a typical CRO either, frankly. Um, I'll give you kind of my story here is after a very brief time as a pre-med student, actually in college and kind of wrestling with OCHEM and realizing that route was not for me. I went like the opposite direction entirely and completed my undergraduate in construction management of all things. Uh, I became a general contractor and believe it or not, founded a small design build startup which, you know, it grew surprisingly fast. We had seven years of 100% CAGR, as we would refer to it today, although I wasn't thinking in those terms at that point, certainly. It, I was very young, started early. I was in kind of my mid-20s at the time and found that construction is one sector. Uh, this was like early 2000s, was an industry really overdue for modernization, which has kind of become a career theme for me personally. And at this firm to scale this small operating and kind of leadership team that I put together, we selected and deployed a, a wide variety of technologies, right? And, and this was kind of me being somewhat of a digital native to the technology space. And we attempted to streamline every function of that company, whether it was on finance or operations, sales and marketing, like we did ERP, CRM, SEO, PPC, like all of these TLAs, right? And um I think in that space at that time, like the primary tech in construction was probably an F-150, maybe a cell phone, right? So that that really, that adoption of technology and the modernization that came with it, again, became kind of a, a career theme for me. So we had we had a surprisingly great run there at that, at that startup. I was really just, I think, a lucky kid, right place, right time, if I'm being honest. And I sold that company. And then went and worked briefly for the same boutique M&A firm that represented me, Sellside, and some other closely held firms. And my, my plan was, Andrew, to just like keep buying another lagging company, modernize it, like inject new leadership and tech, sell it, rinse and repeat. But we got into the 2008 slump and nothing really looked enticing. Like a lot of SMBs were highly leveraged and frankly in rough shape, or they were in great shape, but they were, they were not looking to exit. Um, so this is happening and it was a great education. And then one day I'm flying back from Kauai, which if you haven't been, like probably one of my favorite places on earth. And I hear this kind of over, uh, over here, this big tech conversation on the plane. And I realized in that moment, it's one of those like pivotal moments we all have in our lives where I wanted to go and try something very different. I wanted to go and try enterprise software work for the Fortune 100. I had been dabbling in software, I'd been dabbling in this space, but I hadn't really been in with two feet. So I ended up spending, kind of long story short, eight years at Oracle, working everywhere from like solution engineering as I got started all the way up to some go-to-market leadership roles. And Oracle was, was a great place for a lot of reasons. They were kind enough to pay for my MBA or help pay for it, which was amazing. But really the best education I got was helping that company modernize, again, 
kind of from an old on-prem database juggernaut, right, if you will, to this modern cloud company. And that was a cultural change, the product change, the way we thought about recognized revenue, all of that changed. And, and during my time at Oracle, we acquired over $8 billion in kind of MarTech or what we call customer experience applications alone. And that's where I was very, very focused. And I found that like each of those acquisitions, whether startup or public, each did something uniquely well. Sometimes it was the culture of that of that acquired company or it was the leadership, maybe they had great ways of approaching leader uh, engineering or product or people or the go-to-market strategy, right? So I really learned, I say, the, the most I've ever learned in my career, honestly, during that period, because I got to see so many different companies coming into the Oracle umbrella, if you will. Uh, after that, I, I got excited about going to a smaller company like the ones that we were acquiring uh, through a personal connection, ended up at Qualtrics. If you're familiar with the Qualtrics story, I helped uh, with some of the enterprise growth on that, not that side of their business. We were literally four days away from ringing the bell for that IPO event. SAP came in, made us an offer we couldn't refuse. Uh, that was a little bittersweet for me because it was 100% the right thing for us to do financially as stewards of that business. At the same time, for me, that was like a step back into kind of big tech, which I had just exited. So I ended up going instead after that event to another company in that category referred to as InMoment. Um, I had been there for the last three, four years. So it's a PE-backed firm. So I've done kind of the public. I've done PE-backed. I've done VC-backed. Obviously, at a moment, we're thinking about both top and bottom line, EBITDA, profitable growth, right? Big themes that we hear about a lot today. And then concluding that, I ended up where I am now, as you suggested, at Lob, where we're, we are really kind of Series C, Series D on that IPO track. So I want to focus on one of the first things you said for a moment. I don't think many people on their first entrepreneurial endeavor are able to have any sort of exit. And you're saying that, you know, when you were in your mid twenties, that kind of kicked off this career. So I'm kind of thinking through the different types of success and all the different roles that you've had with different types of stakeholders and different types of investors. Where did you find uh, that uh, ambition? Did I know you said you had a few moments that were uh, just these realizations that you had to go attack some of these opportunities uh, to modernize and grow businesses. But uh, did all of this stem from that first success, or how did you think about risk in those early days? As uh, you know, now you're in a series a CD backed firm, so still some risk in the venture backed world. Uh, but kind of curious as how you think about risk and how you took those early lessons of your first sale of your company into uh, basically doing similar functions of modernizing at all of these different types of firms. Yeah, you know, I I um. I can't take too much credit again for any of that success. Uh, right, right place, right time is definitely a, a theme here, and I think there's a lot of people who are both harder working and smarter than I am, and have have or have not had those types of events and exits in their own past. I am, to your point though, risk loving for sure, for better or for worse, and it, sometimes it's for worse. To be clear, right? Um, but but I think that appetite and even that like desire to go and find increasingly risky but exciting opportunities has just always driven me, whether that was like, hey, I'm, I'm going to start this little company. I don't know the first thing about what I'm doing here, but this sounds like a really exciting opportunity that the ambition that comes with it, the motivation has always just been part of my DNA. Like I can tell you, you know, childhood stories of like 
going around town and like picking up rocks, throwing them in my wagon and selling them door to door, believing that somebody would buy them. Right. I mean, it's just <laughs> like that level of um, entrepreneurship and, and kind of ownership and accountability that comes with the risk side has just always been part of who I am. So let's take a moment to explain what Lob is and kind of the market opportunity uh, that made you excited to join the team because you've been there. It's uh, you've made the move relatively recently, correct? Yes, uh, week eleven officially. I, I know because I've got a <laughs> weekly report and I'm on my eleventh now. Excellent. So let's talk about the the marketing space in general, and then kind of where Lob is fitting in and uh, solving and uh, yeah, solving the needs of the kind of fragmented marketplace of marketing automations. Yeah, you know, if you had hit me up even six months ago, 12 months ago, and said, you know, Corey, you know, one, do you think you'll leave your current role? And two, do you think you'll end up being in kind of the, the direct mail category, if you will, in the future? I would have said absolutely not. Uh, it absolutely isn't where I saw myself headed, but here we are. And I think, again, just like my past, this will end up being a very serendipitous and fortunate move. Um, if you think about law, right, our mission at the highest levels to connect the world, as we like to say, one mailbox at a time. And the premise is like in the digital world, I think the most powerful connections can be found human to human or on the physical side, even within the mailbox. And you know, both, both modern marketers and their audiences, Andrew, I think are getting pretty saturated with like the ubiquitous expensive digital ads that are out there, right? Our, our phones, our searches, our inboxes, they're all full of ads to which most of us are increasingly numb and oblivious in spite of some like really serious and significant investments behind them. So I, I think all of these modern marketing methods will clearly continue to evolve, but Lob is finding surprising success as we bring kind of this tech first digital approach to the direct mail category, which you know is a $75 billion champ that is not going to go away anytime soon in spite of what might happen in the macro environment. And effectively, what we're doing here is replacing what we call junk mail with intelligent mail. Think of highly personalized content arriving at your home at the perfect moment. Like you have no choice but to actually open the mailbox, whether you want to or not, and look at all those pieces and give them at least a couple seconds of thought, which is more than a lot of the you know, messages that come in our inbox. Like one example, we work with a large uh, leading retailer, everybody knows well on kind of what we would consider an abandoned card campaign, similar to what you might see or not see in your inbox. Leave an item unpurchased in your, you know, kind of e-commerce shopping cart. And then tomorrow, here's this beautiful personalized piece in your mailbox. Hey, Andrew, you know, we see you're interested in this particular patio set yesterday. Here are three others just like it. Scan this QR code, go hit a personalized landing page with the discount and some other um, options available we've curated just for you. And that, that level of a personalized, timely, extremely relevant message, it really gets attention, right? It gets results. And without technology and the lob approach, it would have been aspirational, but extremely difficult to pull off when you think about all of the content and the fulfillment that's required for that type of a use case. But, you know, it works. Our customers are seeing on average 19 times better returns than some of these other digital only marketing methods. Um, and today lob reaches one in two households. Wow. I had to, I knew there was going to be some metrics that were going to blow me away in this episode because the second I saw 
that you have leading investors like first round, uh, you know, financing. I knew that there was going to be such an impressive measurable ROI to differentiate just relevant and timely marketing. So it's pretty exciting. On that note, I'd love to spend a moment thinking about how you would describe what a modern CRO looks like and maybe some of the characteristics that you'd consider when, you know, you give us your kind of personal definition of a modern CRO. And I'm thinking about that mostly because I know that there's likely a conversation about culture and scaling. Typically, VC-backed companies are looking or VCs are looking for their VC, their backed companies to to scale pretty aggressively and you know the pandemic and remote and hybrid work has all thrown uh, unique challenges into the mix of hiring and uh, you know creating a, a you know really defined culture within firms. So we'd love to kind of just hear how you think about all of that. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a great book that just came out from David Chichilli of the Alexander Group. Um, I think it's called like Revenue Growth Model. I I say great like. It'll get me going. I'm not sure it'll get everybody else going. It's not a turner <laughs> in the traditional sense, but I, I love it. Um, and he does a nice job, albeit a little academically, of outlining like clearly the modern CRO, to your point, is more than just a glorified VP of sales, right? The, the modern revenue team includes all of those customer facing motions, both you know, sales, service, marketing the entirety of the customer experience. And that's where a lot of my background again has been in that customer experience space. So it's really about revenue leadership, but that includes, you know, he, he lists things like customer segmentation, the value proposition, the engagement motions, channels coverage, right? Direct versus indirect, organizational and job designs, sizing, deployment, uh, talent and enablement, something we're talking a lot about here recently metrics, quota, you know, performance, rewards, like revenue operations, all of that. So I think today the modern CRO needs to master both the art and the science of a revenue system. You know, strategically and tactically, you have to develop that three plus year go-to-market vision and strategy. And then simultaneously like jump in the trenches, send that email, you know, to close the deal this month or this quarter. When we talk about kind of the culture aspect of that, particularly in the you know, modern remote hybrid environment or whatever this is we're all kind of going through right now, uh, I think one theme I'm seeing consistently is the, the boundaries really between professional and, and personal or work and home have forever been softened, right? If not entirely eliminated, destroyed, obliterated, for better or for worse. And I think as leaders, our responsibility is to provide, obviously, a safe environment, but also one that is collaborative and creative, and of course, one that, that uh, promotes productive work. You know, and, and Zoom has its limits. Uh, we've all experienced that, just as the office does too. So I, I don't think it's one or the other. Uh, and the future might be the metaverse, but I don't think that's today. I, I think for the next few years. A lot of our success will be found around the edges, like in the hotel lobbies and the coffee shops and the basement offices, occasionally in the corporate office, sometimes on the balcony or the back deck, you know, not, not to mention the co the co-working spaces and the conference rooms. I think it's a very shared and flexible and distributed model versus like, hey, all in or all out of the office. Now, all that said, I think individually that puts more burden on all of us uh, as human beings to create our own boundaries. 
physically, yes, but also like mentally and emotionally. You know, without clear start and stop times or kind of work in home spaces per se, with everything blurring together, like we we can work or we can play without forced interruptions, and that's not always a good thing. Transitions, like in my life, are almost non-existent. For example, like Andrew, I might finish a very very intense, you know, kind of work negotiation call or something on Zoom, hang up. And then literally be sitting at the dinner table with my family like less than one minute later, right? Like no transition time whatsoever, trying very unsuccessfully to be present for my family while, you know, that last call obviously kind of still occupies my mind and it take me 30 minutes to kind of wind down and be present for the next moment. So I, I think fundamentally the workforce and, and the whole workplace thing has again, modernized and accelerated in the last 24 hours. I think that's incredibly positive, but it does require us uh, as leaders and as, in, as individuals to make some adjustments. And that's more than just like better lighting and better backgrounds on our Zoom calls. I think we have to take control of our lives uh, in a new and very proactive way, or some of this change may actually control us. Yeah, I was thinking about, uh, there's a, a comment to that, I think it was Coinbase's uh, CEO came out and just said, we're not doing politics at the office. I'm sorry, we, we just have, we're a public company. We're staying singularly focused on building out the, you know, the crypto environment. It's just a, it's an example of a, a hard line of one way that you can go. It sounds like the, the team at Lob and what you're describing, though, is just a level of empathy that is just uh, really required to lead and lead by example and putting in some of those kind of pillars and barriers so that you can have transition time and just leading by example by uh, not setting up a 24-7 work environment in, in your basement, even though I've, I'm sure many of us have done that at one point over the last few years. But I think that's really, really great to hear from you because it demonstrates that I think it probably is best coming from the, the top down, coming from the C-suite. Uh, one of the things you sort of mentioned is that there's, you know, it's, it's tricky to have transition time. I wanted to ask if it's not too personal, maybe some of the other things that have been helpful for you to manage both uh, family life and being at, you know, a, a fast paced VC backed firm. Yeah, I, I think most of our listeners are highly educated in the C-suite, likely CFOs. And, you know, I think everyone should be, uh, you know, sharing as much advice as to how to you know, maintain uh, probably the level of professionalism and uh, work ethic. Uh, so if there's anything that's been especially helpful for you or, or how you're communicating to your team about managing some of this, I think it'd be appreciated. Yeah, I, I think it comes down to, and I haven't got this figured out, by the way. So I, I welcome advice from anyone and everyone on this topic. This is a, you know, a perpetual pursuit for all of us, I think. And then we get these COVID type curveballs thrown at us and then we have to adjust what we thought was the balance we had finally achieved right so all, all of that said i'm finding right now i have to be again very intentional and protective of my time it, as much as i love working and, and i truly do and I, I i think of it as something of a hobby for better or for worse so i could work day and night and neglect some other responsibilities and duties within my own life i i have to instead be proactive and protect and block out that time, frankly, at my calendar. And whether that's like, hey, I, I, I'm actually gonna have lunch today. You know, I'm gonna right. take 20 minutes. Right. And that's all it comes down to. I'm gonna get away from the screen, the phone. I'm gonna get some food. I'm gonna sit outside for a minute, get some fresh air, right? 
or I'm going to make sure that this weekend, even if work trickles into the weekend as, as it often does, and I don't mind, that I'm going to do at least one like organized, formal or informal kind of activity with my family, right? That that I make sure that above all else, we plan for some of that quality time together. And, and everybody's cadence and everybody's background is different. I do the same thing for kind of my personal exercise and hobbies too, making sure that I've actually blocked that time off. And then I attempt to treat that with the same urgency and prioritization I would give anything else in my life, professionally or personally. I think that's the only way, right? Because again, the the boundaries are kind of gone. You don't wake up and then like start your day and I don't know, exercise and eat breakfast and not think about work until you get into the office at 9 a.m. That's not how it works. Uh, my, my good dad, who I love to death, still calls me about 12, 10 every other day almost. And he's like, hey, Corey, I'm hoping I've caught you on your lunch break. You know, is this your lunch hour right now? And I, God bless my dad. I've told him like 30 times, dad, I don't have like a traditional lunch break, lunch hour. That's not how my world at least works anymore. So yeah, still figuring that out, but creating those little time blocks has worked well for me. And I know a lot of others do the same thing. I want to talk about the differences and well, the evolving demands of your role, but maybe it'd be interesting to talk about the differences between working at public and private and private equity backed versus venture capital backed. I mean, I feel like there are slight differences when you've got different types of stakeholders and I, I would imagine different paces of the role. And I would imagine, so Lob isn't your first venture backed firm, right? Qual- Qualtrics would have been right. you know, venture backed before their eventual sale, but I've got to imagine that's very different than having the resources of you know a, an Oracle, or is it similar? And you're just in a you know a smaller team within a big organization. I'm kind of curious as to what those different types of of stakeholders demand on your individual role. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, across call it four different chapters at startup that I referenced on my own, we refer to as upscale of whether it's Oracle, Qualtrics, Moment, or Lob now. Growth has always been a consistent theme, but the, the way that growth has been approached and for whom that growth has been sought after has absolutely varied. Uh, you know, my first experience as that very young founder, it was all about kind of personal experience and personal lifestyle. Um, at Oracle, as you might expect, it was 100% about shareholders and the public perspectives. Uh, as you mentioned at Qualtrics with the growth and the VC backing, we, we talked very much about, you know, how, how are we going to maintain 40% plus year-over-year growth, exit of 20x, right? And that, and that meant growth almost at all costs, right? Kind of in the traditional VC sense. And then at a moment, again, it was like, it's returns. It's returns for our private equity owners and everybody else that's part of that. And we thought about uh, things like the rule of 40 or the rate, weighted rule of 40 is one of measuring our success in that category. Um, and, I, and I actually think that's very re- relevant when we talk about what's happening in the market today. I mean, frankly, some of the current headlines can be really scary. And clearly the market is evolving in 22 very rapidly, right? Which I think is actually short-term pain, long-term gain. It's a healthy correction. We all agree on that. But amongst all of the the FUD, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, you know, you look at the numbers, like global venture funding in April 
of this year totaled $47 billion still, right? To put that in perspective, that's down 12% from April of 21. So clearly we're down, but this April still, this April's total still exceeds funding in any given month um, in 2020 by at least 10%. So yes, funding is cooling is one measure of kind of the health of the market and what's going on, but it is clearly not evaporating. Right. There's got to be a record amount of dry powder in the VC's hands still to deploy. So it will be interesting to see maybe the maybe the uh, rounds are priced a little bit more uh, reasonably. I think we've seen some pretty pretty expensive rounds for investors recently, but uh, maybe that correction will just look like you know slightly different valuations as opposed to a cool off of deal flow altogether. Yeah, I mean, if, if you think about the deal flow, right, where those valuations are going, you know, Tomo Bravo is a nice example in the public sector right now, right? PE, obviously, very active, very acquisitive in 22. I think in March, they deployed over 17 billion. You know, they bought Anaplan, um, they bought SailPoint, right? They increased the position in user Zoom. And, you know, if you talk with Orlando Bravo, he'll tell you that today's best tech companies, the, particularly the SaaS companies like our own, have great growth fundamentals. This recurring revenue model is going to continually command probably the best multiples over the long term versus nearly any all industries. But, but you know, the big but this year is the market has changed, right? He and others are looking for not just growth, but profitable growth. So those EBITDA multiples are the ones that are trending up today, uh, even when all others seem to be heading down. So, you know, at, at Log, thankfully, we're in a very fortunate position. We've been careful, even conservative with our cash, with our raises, with our valuations. We're not exposed like some others might be right now. So, you know, we're going to continue our forward motion, but that will include proper emphasis on profitable growth. I, I think the days of like growth at all costs were probably a little excessive in some cases. And, and frankly, I welcome the more sustainable future here. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was just talking to an investor who is kind of one of the more or one of the earlier crossover funds that do both large public and private investments. And, you know, their rationality is that, you know, they just find good deals, whether it's, you know, private investments or in the public markets. But they like to be kind of the, uh, the an early investor and stick with the, the firms through their IPOs and then even afterwards. And just to think about some of the perspectives that that these investors have, I've seen like I feel like there's a lot more of these large money managers moving uh, into the pre-IPO world and competing against some of these other large VCs. It's a really interesting market development, and still on kind of the theme of you know maybe a slowly merging public and private environment from an investor standpoint, and maybe even some of these companies. You know, I, I tend to think that there are probably, probably just as much media coverage on some of these pre-IPO companies than the small caps these days. It's a really interesting market to keep an eye on, especially as uh, as interest rates start to, to float around. I did want to talk about some of the great stories that you have about Larry Ellison at Oracle, if, if that's a fun deviation from markets. I mean, we could speculate on interest <laughs> prices all day if you wanted to, but- uh, I thought that might be a fun transition. Yeah, sure. Larry Ellison. Wow. You know, great, uh, amazing entrepreneur, you know, an eccentric personality for sure, but extremely impressive on, on so many measures. Yeah. Great Larry stories abound. So one of them he had at the time, 
I, I think like one of the largest super yachts in the world. Some of the stuff is almost embarrassing, right? R- referred to as the rising sun. It was like 450 foot yacht. I think David Geffen uh, is floating around on it now. It's like 85 rooms. And there's a basketball court, of course, on, on the deck. Uh, because, right, all boats should have basketball courts on the deck. And, uh, Naturally. Right? And I think um, there was this, there was a contest where the, a top performer at Oracle did happen to me that to be me that year, you know, got the privilege of going out on Larry's boat and floating with the boss for a few hours and shooting a little hoop. So he, he goes out there and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of playing with, with old man Larry, if you will, right. And, and a well-beloved CEO, but maybe not the type of guy that you like go really hard at when you're playing ball. And so he wants to make the boss look really good. Yep. So this uh, aspiring young man throws the basketball in a really awkward way on purpose to miss the shot bounces off the rim, go completely off the deck and into the water. And, and the guy's like super embarrassing. He's just like, oh, what have I done? You know, like I ruined my chance to play a little hoop with a, with a big man. Right. <laughs> he looks at Larry expecting Larry to be, you know, pretty upset or agitated or something. Larry just kind of shakes his head, kind of, you know, puts his finger out, like, hold on one second. And no sooner does that ball hit the water than two guys on jet skis, come out from behind the boat or wherever they happen to be. And they grab that ball nearly the moment it hits the water. And I, oh I think gosh. Larry kind of implies like, Hey, you gave these guys something to do today. This is, this is, <laughs> this is great. This is their job. This is what they do all day, every day. Now I'm sure they had other duties and responsibilities. And I think there's something like 45 people that staff that boat, but that, that level of, you know, excess and extravagance, um, which, which I will never see. And that's, just fine with me. It's kind of indicative of the fun, the fun guy that, that is Larry. And I know Steve Jobs' children would refer to Larry as, you know, our rich friend to put <laughs> to perspective. It's just yeah. outrageous stories, but you know, a, a good person and an amazing entrepreneur too. That's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. It reminds me of <laughs> just a dream that I have someday of competing for him uh, over some of the America's Cup sponsorships. I know that we were talking uh, last time we spoke uh, just a little bit about sailing and you had a really unique experience and analogy that uh, would be kind of fun to share if you're comfortable doing so. I think it represents um, just a really unique framework for people to kind of view work and teamwork and leadership. So if you're comfortable doing that, that'd be great. Yeah. So on a sailboat and to be clear, I am not a sailor, not, not on large nor small boats. Uh, but I had a friend who is, and he brought me out on his boat fairly recently. And we, we did an amazing tour around Antigua. Um, and when, when, went around some of the Caribbean islands, anyways, what, what I learned firsthand is we're out kind of on the open water at, at a few moments is, you know, everybody has a job on the boat. Everybody has a job. And sometimes that job might be, you know, the captain's role and it might be like navigating the waters and making sure we don't hit even those Caribbean reefs and we've got the sails in the right position as the wind changes, right? Other jobs, and they're probably the jobs that I'm getting on the boat, you know, might be keeping the deck clean, uh, making sure that the ropes, and I'm sorry, they're not even called ropes because he told me like, there is no such thing as a rope on a sailboat. They all have proper names, which I don't remember. Nonetheless, like making sure that everything is in its proper place um, that simple things like, you know, the cabinets are locked down so that when we get one of those big rollers, we don't lose all of our glassware or something, um, is, is just as important and a really big part of making sure that that boat gets safely to its destination. And then we have a lot of fun along the way. 
and and just you know a little bit of a life lesson there i guess it at the job like sometimes everybody wants to be the captain right and i, I appreciate like the aspiration like that's great we should aspire to whatever gets us going but the best way to get there sometimes is to just know your job and do it know your job and do it really really well and and rather than like trying to tell the captain how to navigate you know share opinions and be helpful as necessary but i think the boat actually has more success which creates more success for us personally as we know our jobs individually and we do them what whatever that takes and i think i've had a good career because i've never been too good for whatever was required on the job you know call it scrappy call it not like having an ego uh, certainly not perfect here, but you know, if I needed to do a dirty job in those construction days, and that meant as the owner of this company, I'd have to go and sweep the job sites because no other contractor or team member did that. I'd go sweep the job sites, like whatever it took to help us be successful. Do your job, do it well. Has worked really well for me, Andrew. Yeah, I really like that analogy, and I think it actually makes a lot of sense that you've got that perspective given all the different experiences you've had, especially from uh, you're starting your own company first, just the amount of different types of tasks that you've got to be able to manage. And then also having the perspective now in an organization that you've got a, a defined role and what it looks like to do it really well. So I'm going to hit you with more uh, rapid kind of questions about yeah. things that are coming up, uh, You know, things that you're excited about in the next uh, 12 months to kick things off. Uh, and then we'll go out and you can tell me what you're looking forward to with a more of a broader perspective in the next three to five years? Yeah, so short term at work, um, profitable growth, as I suggested, is the name of the game, or, or for a lot of uh, SaaS startups, it's not even profitable, it's break-even growth, right? I think we're absolutely gonna think about nearly triple digit year for year growth. That's gonna be our North Star here as we establish and grow our very attractive recurring revenue base a lot. But the winds have shifted, you know, back to the sailing analogies and making sure that we have an efficient business is super important to getting today's premium valuation multiples. Uh, we're not going to stop measuring and prioritizing growth. When we think of, you know, annual recurring revenue, that's how we measure it. But we're also introducing and communicating in, in ways that some of our leadership have never had to the, the notion of EBITDA and what that means and what that represents and how we manage a business accordingly. And I think that's a relatively novel concept, right? For a lot of VC <laughs> companies. Yeah. But, but again, I think we're fortunate to be ahead of the curve a little bit here. Uh, when I, when I go a little further out, like the next three to five years, personally, professionally, um, you know, on the job side, I'm at law because I'm overwhelmingly bullish about our opportunity again, to modernize, and progressively own this $75 billion category. No company is in a better position as far as I'm concerned, just a little bit of bias here to be the leader in this category. And, and I think between tech, we refer to that as the SaaS part, right? But the SaaS plus component of like the supply chain, the fulfillment, sometimes a very difficult part of this business model as we continually own and optimize that, we have every reason to achieve some really incredible scale and we're connecting kind of the world through mailboxes in, in every country, all the way from design to delivery. And you see examples of success with SaaS Plus when you look at an Amazon, when you look at an Uber, when you look at a DoorDash and the third parties that are involved in some of that fulfillment. So really excited about our position there long term. Personally, um, you know, I'm just excited 
to keep playing around on my backhoe, uh, build some more roads and trails on my little piece of property here. I actually spent an hour out there early this morning. Nice break, you know, and for me outside of work, there are a few things more satisfying than just working alone for a few minutes in the woods, hands dirty, kind of back tired, drinking some coffee, maybe listening to Motley Crue, like that, those are great <laughs> escapes for me. Very traditional, but very rewarding too. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great. Uh, I was just thinking, laughing to myself, thinking if we've had any CFOs on the podcast who uh, said profitability and SaaS company in, in the same sentence, just, uh, <laughs> just making me chuckle. Well, one of my favorite parts of the podcast and a question I ask every episode, one that is very interesting to me because we've got such a uniquely large breadth of types of people who come on the show is from, you know, from your vantage point and perspective, is there anything that you feel is underestimated in the world today? You know, how about this one? Self-regulation. Interesting. We, we, yeah, we all, we all get to experience negative emotions, right? Something at work or home upsets us. You know, it could be a coworker, a partner, it could be a, you know, a process or a project. Sometimes it's short-term, sometimes it's long-term. But the ability to personally control and manage our emotions it's a really powerful and I think rare form of emotional intelligence. And if you show me a person who can own her triggers, her reactions, her responses, her fears to life, I'll show you someone who can own the world. I've got to say, that's got to be one of the most unique answers to that question. I love that. And I feel like it probably is just as relevant at work as it is at home. So I really appreciate that. And I would be hard pressed to think of a way we could end on a, on a higher note. I wanted to make sure that everyone had the opportunity to get in touch with you if they wanted to and how they could find out more about Lob. Yeah, uh, personally, hit me up on LinkedIn. It's probably the best place, P. Corey Hogan. Uh, obviously, Lob.com, L-O-B.com is a great way to start. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me on The Modern CFO. Corey, I hope we can speak again soon. I'm thrilled to watch Lob uh, continue to grow at an amazing pace. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Andrew. Absolute pleasure.